good morning. It's lovely to be with you on this sticky morning, isn't it? But uh, maybe we can turn the fans up one more notch. Does anyone want the fans up? Should we do a quick vote? Huh? A little bit, a little bit higher. We're going to hurricane mode. So uh, great. As uh, as Nolufefe said already today, we're going to be preaching our final message in our Do It Again series. But before we do, just, just a note on COVID. I think we're so tired of hearing about COVID, but uh, we're praying for you, and I was thinking a lot about you just this weekend, looking at graphs and, and, and what's happening right now. And I think as South Africans, I don't know if you, you feel like me, but kind of around about October, November, the, it felt like the country was feeling this thing's over. You know, like wherever you went, it just felt like this thing is lifted, and now maybe suddenly you're thinking, what? You know, like, they can't go to the beach in the Eastern Cape, you know, and I can't go to the beach on Christmas Day or on Boxing Day. Just want to say that if you look at the graphs, uh, our daily uh, cases is as high at the moment as it was at our peak. It's just under. And so it is great that we're in the room, but I do want to encourage us to, to be wise, to wear masks. We love being together, but to be together... Let's love one another by just giving one another space. Let's be vigilant with masks, etc., uh, etc. Et so, uh, but all through this, I think we really need to remember that next year, this is going to be a long-term thing. And so we need to fight for the things that are truly valuable to us uh, the whole way through next year. And I think maybe sometimes, uh, I was just feeling like some people are feeling weary you know, it's like, well, when are we going to get back to normal? There's still more to go. It's like I've only ever run one 21K race, and the story was I'd only ever run 5Ks, 10Ks with a bunch of guys, and then one day someone had a stupid idea of doing a half marathon, and none of us had run more than 10Ks ever in our lives. And when you got to about 12Ks, my feet just said, no. Like, what are you doing? You know, stop. You don't run more than this. And, uh, and I really had to push myself through that point. And I think we're at that point where, where we feel like this is enough now. This is wearying. Maybe you're at home, you're online. Some people, some of our older folk, are, are in, in homes. I'm thinking of Gwen. And Gwen, if you're listening, hi, Gwen. You know, Gwen hasn't been able to be at church for month after month after month. And now you're thinking it's going to be more months Brothers and sisters, let's be mindful of one another. Let's reach out to one another. Let's gather when we can like this, but let's be safe as we do that. Amen. So can we do that? I just want to pray over our church. Can I just pray over every individual, every family? Let's pray for wisdom, but also for tenacity to push through this moment. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, as we preached at the start of this pandemic and a hard lockdown, uh, and we looked at verses, uh, Psalms 121, Psalms 46, Psalms like that, Lord, where we look to you, the Lord, our keeper. We thank you that we've reached the end of the year and you have been our keeper. Lord God, we want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. But Lord, as we hear of cases around us and people who are positive, and right now Tom being at home, uh, COVID positive, Lord God, Lord, we pray for every single member of our church. God, we continue to pray for protection, for health, for safety, for us and for our children, for our families. But we also pray for, Lord, you to strengthen us and to fortify us for the road that's ahead. Lord, I want to ask that you would help us to be mindful of one another, that we'd be reaching out to one another, that we would be loving one another, caring for one another. And Lord, we would not give up the habit of meeting together, whatever that looks like at the present time. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You know, the Church of Jesus Christ has faced many things. And this too, the church of Jesus Christ will come through and overcome. Hallelujah. Wonderful. So uh, as we get to preach our final message uh, in the series, uh, I've entitled my message this morning, a bit of a, a long one, but do it again, building the church through homes, meals, and hospitality. That just feels like this time of year, isn't it? And uh, so... 
For this final message in the series, I'm not going to do what's called expositional preaching. I'm not going to take one passage and take the whole message out of that passage, but I'm going to preach on a theme or a topic, which is in our title there, and I'm sure you will see that as I refer to Scripture, many of them are going to be Scriptures we're not even going to turn to. If you want my notes, I can give them to you later, but as we refer to many Scriptures, you're going to see a very powerful theme. There is a pattern in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church that is recorded on the pages of the New Testament of your Bible. Ian, you might need to move chairs. Stay safe. Where was I? There is a pattern on the pages of the New Testament that is seen in the life of Jesus and is seen in the life of the early church And we want to say, Lord Jesus, would you cause us to repeat this pattern in our day and in our lives? So that's where we're going. So let's start with Jesus. And there's an amazing verse in in Luke where it says of Jesus that Jesus came eating and drinking with people. Just think of it. The, the, The Son of God who we celebrate, who came on Christmas Day, the summary of His life was he came eating and drinking with people. Isn't that remarkable? This is God. Now, it was actually something that his enemies, those who opposed him, kind of charged him with. And then Jesus in Luke 7 verse 34 is repeating what they're saying. And so he says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. Now, he never ate too much because he never sinned, so he never was greedy, and he was never drunk uh, because he never sinned, but they were saying this of him. You, you, you're hanging out with people who are eating lots of food and drinking lots of wine, I presume. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend of people that maybe you shouldn't even associate with. This is what is said of our Lord Jesus Christ. So food, let me hear an amen, ukudla, is that right? Food, meals in homes with a whole range of diverse and interesting people, disciples, opponents, seekers, and sinners was the defining pattern of Jesus' life and His ministry. That's what Jesus was doing. Yes, Jesus performed miracles, and yes, Jesus taught, but in between that, it looks like he was eating with people. If we just look at one of the Gospels, Luke's Gospel, I'm telling you, it is full of stories where Jesus is eating with people, and he's talking around the meal table. Let me just go very quickly through the Gospel of Luke. You're not going to be able to look it all up. In Luke 5, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house, who was a tax collector. And he kind of invites Jesus over, and Jesus actually invited himself over. And, uh, and there's all this dubious crowd in Levi's house, and Jesus is just in the middle of it, and he's being himself, God amongst sinners. In Luke 7, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. This is one of the guys who are trying to trick him and oppose him. These were guys who had questions about him. And Jesus says, yeah, you invite me, I'll come to your home. So he's at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And at that meal, uh, actually, uh, Mary comes to Jesus in the middle of that. And Jesus turns that awkward moment into a teaching moment that really honors her. In Luke 9, Jesus throws a feast for 5,000 on the fields. There was no food, and suddenly there's food for 5,000, and there's food left over. Jesus is concerned about whether they're eating food or not, and he, 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 he establishes a meal out of nothing. In Luke 10, Jesus is eating. We find him in the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, his friends. These were close friends of his. In Luke 11, Jesus again is in the house of a Pharisee. In Luke 14, Jesus again is in the house of a Pharisee. He even eats with his enemies. Jesus is amongst the people. Are you getting the picture? In Luke 19, this is all Luke. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. 
And so he enters Zacchaeus' world. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. And today we're going to break bread at the end of our message. And we break bread to remember this moment. And in John's gospel, this moment is recorded from verses 30, uh, chapters 13 all the way to chapter 17 is all this Last Supper moment. And there's so much teaching in John about this. But in Luke 22, Luke records the account of the Last Supper, and Jesus is with His close disciples, these 12 who He'd called to Himself to be with Him. And the amazing thing is they're in a house. They're in what's called an upper room. Now, I've got a house with a roof room. You know, we cut the roof off about 10 years ago, and we just put another room on top. And so we've got an upper room. Well, houses in those days had upper rooms that were places for prayer, places for big gatherings and big meals because there was space up there. And Jesus is gathered in an upper room of a house with his disciples. In Luke 24, the risen Jesus, who hasn't yet fully ex exposed himself back to his disciples, he reveals himself to two disciples who are walking on the road, on the road to Emmaus. And it says that as they shared a meal, he opened up the Scriptures and he showed how he was on the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. He was the answer to all of the Old Testament. And in Luke 24 also, we see that the resurrected Jesus walks through a wall or through a door into the middle of a prayer meeting in an upper room, and to prove that He's real, they give Him some fish and He eats it. And so Jesus joins them in a meal. Brothers and sisters, can you see the pattern there? I hope it's clear to see that Jesus Eight with a whole group of diverse people. If we were to jump into some of the other Gospels, we know that the resurrected Jesus does a fish bry for all those fishermen. Jesus does a fish bry on the side of the lake for the disciples for breakfast, okay? The other day I went out to the staff and at 20 past five in the morning, Sitabile ordered fried fish. True disciple of Jesus, okay? Fish for breakfast, okay? This guy, Robert Harris, said this. Sorry, Sitabila, I had to work that in somehow. You could say that in Luke's gospel, Jesus was either going to a meal, Jesus was at a meal, or he was coming from a meal. That's basically Luke's gospel about Jesus. He's doing lots of other things, but he's either going to meals, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Friends, I want you to notice that Jesus wasn't just eating with his disciples. Did you notice how many times he's with Pharisees, he's with a wider group of seekers or those who, who, who aren't even seeking, maybe they're just interested. He's sharing meals and conversations, he's sharing life that happens around those moments. I don't know what happens around your table, I don't know what happens in your kitchen, but it feels like in the Bowley household, the kitchen is like the center of everything. Everyone kind of congregates at the kitchen. Is that right in your house? It's kind of close to the fridge. That's kind of, there's a magnet there, okay? Is that like, like you? Well, Jesus is always congregating with people around food, and there's lots that happens in those moments. There's conversations, there's not just food. But Jesus is doing this with all types of people, those who are believing in Him, those who are on a journey of faith, and even those who are opposing Him. So there is a very pronounced pattern in the life of Jesus. He gathered people around food. What about the early church? Well, the early church grew, it strengthened, it expanded in homes and around meals. Exactly what Jesus was doing, the early church carried on. It, it's not surprising that the disciples of Jesus kind of watched Jesus for three years and then just did that. They carried on doing it. And so let's have a quick survey of mostly the book of Acts uh, just like we did in Luke for Jesus, let's look at the book of Acts for the New Testament and see if we can see the pattern. In Acts chapter 1, the believers are gathered in the upper room. It's probably the same upper room that the Last Supper was in. And Jesus has gone, and so He tells them to wait in Jerusalem, so they're waiting in a house. Just where Jesus has recently shared the Passover meal with them, now they're waiting for the Holy Spirit and in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost comes in a house. Pentecost happens in an upper room of a house. 
in verse in Acts 2, 44 to 47, it says that the believers were all together. They were in close proximity with one another. They didn't occasionally meet once a week for one and a half hours, every other week occasionally. No, the believers were literally together. That's what Luke says. They were sharing life. They were sharing possessions. They were sharing worship. They were sharing scripture. They were sharing stories of Jesus. They were breaking bread in homes, it says, Acts uh, 2, verses uh, 44 to 47. They were sharing meals with one another, just like Jesus did. Acts 5, Peter and the apostles have been in jail, and when they get released from jail, they go and they start teaching, both in the temple and, it says, house to house. They teach the church in homes, because that is where the church is gathering. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, when, the, uh, when Saul, before he becomes Paul, before he's saved, when he wants to persecute the church and he wants to find the church, guess where he finds the church? Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says that he attacked the church house to house because that is where the church of Jesus Christ was growing and multiplying and expanding. They were spending time together with one another in homes. And by Acts 10, 24, Cornelius, this Gentile man, is in his house and he has an angel uh, speak to him. And he's, he's a God-fearing man and he, he hears an angel speaking to him and uh, tells him to go and call for uh, the apostle Peter. And God speaks to Peter and these guys show up and they bring Peter to Cornelius' house. And what Cornelius does is he invites his whole family and he invites all his friends. It's like Christmas time. He gets everyone together because Peter's going to come. And when Peter comes to his house, it's like Pentecost 2.0. The house is filled with Gentiles this time. Not like the first Pentecost, but now it's filled with Gentiles and a few Jews with Peter and the others. And the Holy Spirit falls just as the Holy Spirit fell in Pentecost in a house. And we should be really excited about Pentecost 2.0 because every one of us here is here because of that moment. And it happened in a house. In Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 5, and then verses 12 to 17, I love the story where Peter gets imprisoned again. And then an angel breaks him out of jail. And he comes out of jail kind of late at night. And he thinks, what should I do? And what he thinks to do is, let me go to Mary's house because I know the church will be there praying. And so he shows up late at night and he knocks on the door and the church is meeting in Mary's house. Where does the church meet? In houses. And they are praying for his release, but he's already been released. And he's knocking on the door, and Rhoda says, I think it's Peter. And they say, no, it can't be Peter. He's in jail. It's like, no, it's Peter. And the church is meeting and praying in a house. In Acts chapter 16, we read of an amazing businesswoman. Uh, her name is Lydia, and she's the, she, she runs a business in material, and particularly purple material. And uh, she sells this uh, material, and she meets um, Paul, and she gets saved. It says, the Lord opened her heart, and she gives her life to Jesus. And then guess what she does next? This wealthy woman opens up her home, and her whole household, that means everyone who's in it, gets saved. And the church in Philippi starts meeting in her house. She just says, come, you can use my place. And suddenly there's a church in Philippi. And we know that the jailer also gets added to that church and a demonized girl who used to tell fortunes. And that's an amazing community group, hey? The ex-jailer, the ex-demonized girl who told fortunes and Lydia, that's a cool community group, don't you think? And then in Acts 18, Paul is in Corinth. These are all the letters of the New Testament. You know these letters, hey? And he's in Corinth. And he's been trying to preach about Jesus in the temple, and they don't want to hear about it. So he goes just next to the temple to the house of a man called Titius Justus. I had to practice that one. And, uh, and his house is right next to the temple, and Paul just says, okay, I'm coming to your house. And he proclaims the gospel about Jesus 
in the house right next to the temple, and guess what happens? A whole group of people get saved, including Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue comes to the house next to the synagogue and gets saved there. And the church in Corinth starts in his house. And Acts 20, the church is gathered once again in a house, and uh, Paul is about to leave this area, and so he has some last things that he wants to teach on them, and he's preaching so long. You must never complain that we preach long. He preaches so long that the, the house is so full that this young man called Eutychus is sitting on the sill of the window, and he preaches so long he falls out the window and dies. And so they have to walk down and say, oh, what a pain, and they pick him up and bring him back and he gets raised back to life, and Paul carries on preaching. Hallelujah. In a house, in Acts 20, verse 20, it's recorded that Paul's pattern was to preach in public and to teach in homes. And in Acts 28, Paul is arrested in Rome. He's under Roman God, but he's allowed to live in a house. He's in a house arrest. So he's like, this is perfect, I'll preach to the gods that I'm chained to, and he writes to the, the Philippians, I think it is, hey, the whole Roman God have heard about Jesus because I'm chained to them. So he, he preaches about Jesus in this house, and he's allowed to invite people. If you read in, in, in Acts 28, he invites people to come to this house, and he's there for two years, and he preaches the gospel from prison, and people come to the house to hear the gospel. Are you hearing the pattern? Romans 16, verse 3 and 5, there's this power couple called Priscilla and Aquila, and there's a church in Ephesus that meet in their house. And then in Acts 16, there's a guy called Gaius in verse 23, who hosted Paul and the whole church in his house. That looks like it was in Rome. And then in Colossians, there's a lady called Nympha, and she seems to be leading a church in her house. And there's another guy called Philemon in Colossia, and he also leads a church or hosts a church that meets in his house. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see the pattern. Jesus did life and ministry around meals and food and in homes, and the early church did exactly what Jesus had been doing. That's what the pattern of the New Testament is. Friends, houses and hospitality is so important to the growth and the health of a local church that you might not have known this, but hospitality is a requirement to become an elder. Did you know that? You have to be a master chef to become an elder. I don't know how Tom got in. He can cook spaghetti, and no, I'm joking. I have no idea what Tom cooks, because he's never invited me to his house. He's, he's online, because he's got COVID. A requirement of eldership is to be hospitable, to have a house and a family that is open. That doesn't mean that you need to be a chef to be an elder, but it means that your house must be open. It means that your dinner table should be shared, not just for your family, but it should be shared because churches meet in? So let's try that again. Churches meet in? Houses, in homes, around meal tables because that's what Jesus was like because elders must be like Jesus and that's what Jesus did. Can you see the connection? Lastly, I think when you think about the New Testament and eating together, just listen for a moment. It's, it's worth noting that the worst form of punishment in the New Testament, the worst form of punishment for someone who has a pattern of ongoing deliberate sin, if you're a Christ follower, the, the worst form of punishment was the command don't eat with that person. Don't eat with that believer. So if you really were messing up, not just occasionally, but you were messing up monumentally and carrying on in your messing up, 
the instruction from the Apostle Paul was don't eat with that believer. Not don't eat with that unbeliever because Jesus ate with unbelievers, right? But if you're calling yourself a Christ follower and you're carrying on living like an unbeliever, I mustn't eat with you. That was the punishment. You can't come to my table. That's how central meals was to the early church. Because when you invite someone to your table or to your house, there's an interpersonal exchange. Would you agree with me? There's something that happens. You know, if we, if we say, hey, let's meet up at Mug and Bean, yeah, that's okay. That's like a third place. But if I say, come to my house, there's something different there. Would you agree with me? And so the worst form of punishment was to actually say, don't eat with that person. And yet, believers, listen to me, so many of us choose to eat alone. When I say choose to eat alone, you eat just with you and your family. But that was a form of punishment in the New Testament. Now, I know we're in a global pandemic. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I know you don't have a mask on right now, but I do. And did you not see the stats? I just want to ask you whether there's a pattern in your life of inviting brothers and sisters from our church into your own home to share a meal with you. Is that the pattern of your life? Now, I know 2020 is kind of a little bit exceptional, so there's a bit of, you've got a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for a moment, okay? But the way we're behaving in malls and all over the place, and I'm suggesting that we be wise, I just want to ask you, forget COVID for a moment, has the pattern of your life been that I have people in my home and I'm in other people's homes, I'm with believers in Jesus from my church, because that's where the church was meeting, from house to house, that that's a regular pattern, that's a habit of my life, or isn't it? And I want to just challenge us to hold with value, even with all the COVID health warnings. Let's just put those out there. Don't say, he was so irresponsible, he told us to meet in homes. Don't you know there's a global pandemic? There is, yes. But I'm just asking you to hold high what is high in Scripture. And I do want to have the dial-on challenge to encourage us to not do what was a form of punishment in the New Testament, which was to eat by yourself. Amen? So that brings me to my third point. Let's do it again and again and again. I think it's very clear. I think it would be hard for someone to argue that I haven't shown you there's a pattern in Jesus' life and that there was a pattern in the early church that the church was built through homes, through meals, through hospitality, through people opening up their homes and people going to homes. But let's get really practical now and ask the question, why are meals and sharing meals in homes around our tables and in our rooms, why is that so important? And I'm going to put up a list here, and I think you can even come up with more than I've got on my list. But let's just... Let's hang out in this question for a while because I want you to get a conviction about the value of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> well, firstly, meals in our homes allow a myriad of amazingly good things to happen. Firstly, when you invite someone to your home, it's an opportunity for servanthood. So I'm going to someone's home. They're sitting, I'm not going to say who they are, but they are so glad they invited me and my family yesterday because <laughs> they're already say yes, amen. But I can guarantee you already that there's been preparation that's gone ahead to us coming. So they are, in a sense, serving us. And when we leave, maybe we will wash the dishes. I don't know. Or maybe they'll wash the dishes or maybe their kids will. But someone is going to clean up. When we share a meal, there's an opportunity to serve other people. Would you agree with me? Someone is always serving in preparation, in a wash-up. Secondly, in a meal, there's an opportunity for generosity. Now, if you are invited to a Zulu person's house, are you expected to be bringing anything? Is it a bring and share? Thank you, Nolufefe. In closer culture as well? Huh? 
So bring and share doesn't exist in, in Zulu culture. In fact, now I have to say to people, I'm inviting you for a bride. It's a Zulu bride. Okay, cool. Then I know. Then I'm just coming. Okay? And if I say bring and share, I just see like I need more ram. You know? You, you, you. But a meal is an opportunity for generosity. Because even if you are bringing and brying, which is fine, as long as we all know that that's what we're doing, but if we bring in brying, someone is maybe making a salad. It's an opportunity to bless other people, isn't it? And even if you're not bringing something, sometimes people bring some flowers or they bring. It's an opportunity for generosity when we share a meal. It's an opportunity also for grace. You know, when you have people, if I have people to my house, I'm not thinking, well, I had to have them around. I mean, if I phoned you up and I said, Londiwe, uh, do you want to come to my house on, on Wednesday night? You know, I haven't had you around for a long time, and I guess I should have you around. Does Londiwe want to come? Or if I say, hey, Londiwe, we'd love to have you around on Wednesday night. Would you like to come? Which is better? It's like if you buy flowers. I learned this early. If I bought flowers for Nadine and I give her this bunch of flowers and it cost 100 rand, and I give it to her and I say, Here's some flowers. And she says, thank you. And I say, well, I had to. I'm your husband. How's that working for me? But I take the same hundred rand of flowers and I give it to her. And she says, oh, thank you. And I go, I love you. So I learned some stuff in 25 years, okay? When you give grace around a meal, you're not giving something. You're not paying them back. Well, they had us, so we better have them. Do you want to go to that? Or do you want someone to be gracious and, and giving? You know, when you give grace to someone, who are you being like? You're being like God, because He is gracious to us. Meals are an opportunity for sharing. You know, although we do serve when we have someone around, it's actually an opportunity for sharing. And some of the meals that I invite people around, I plan for us to do it together, because we actually get to share the task together, and actually that's some of the joy. You could share the wash-up or the, the preparation, or you could share in providing for a meal. Meals are also an opportunity for vulnerability. You know, sometimes around the table, stuff happens. Suddenly something happens, and now there's a moment where you can either get to share or you can hold back. Meals are an opportunity for sharing, for caring, for conversation, for connection, for communication. Families... You know these little cell phones? I don't have mine on me. These things are ruining our meals. Families should eat together, but so should church families. These moments are moments, not just I've put it all in and I rush off, but a moment to just pause and to connect and to communicate. Think about meals and how they're moments for impromptu discipleship. You know, you come to someone's house Let's just keep using the Bowleys. You come to the Bowleys house, and you see Nadine and I interacting, and one day you want to be married. You're learning stuff. Sometimes you're learning stuff you don't want to do. It's like, geez, I don't want to do that again. Sometimes, hopefully, you're also learning things that you do want to do. Or, or something happens with a child, and you see a parent interacting with their child, and that's a moment for discipleship. And those are sometimes good moments and sometimes not good moments, but they're moments of impromptu learning. You didn't say, okay, now we're going to do a lesson on marriage. No, we're just having a meal. But when you're in a house, stuff happens. Would you agree with me? I've told the story before of Ryan Richardson. Ryan, if you ever see this. Uh, I'll never forget the moment in our kitchen when Ryan Richardson, I was discipling him, and, and Nadine and I started having an argument. Yeah, we can have an argument. And, uh, and Ryan started doing this. He kind of grabbed Luke and started moving towards the door. He was going to go play outside with Luke. And I said, no, 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 Ryan, just stop. And he was like, I said, you're going to watch us sort this out. Because maybe you've just realized Nadine and I can have an argument, but let's see how we, how we resolve it. I don't think that was the most pleasant moment for him, but hopefully it, it helps him in his marriage. Meals are also an opportunity for intergenerational learning. I love how at a meal, you know, when your kid's really small, you give them a high chair. Huh? And so they're sitting at the table at the same level as everyone because you have to eat off the same, the same table. And at a meal, depending on your culture... In one sense, everyone is equal. 
and you get kids listening in to adults. I hope the kids aren't in some other room somewhere. I think there's so much opportunity when you've got intergenerational learning. Second from last in this list, third actually, meals are an opportunity in our church and in our nation for cross-cultural experiences. Who, who went to one of our diversity dinners that we had a few years ago where you signed up for a diversity dinner? So Nganga and Dee decided, well, we are having tripe made. And Gareth's going to eat it. And he even videoed me eating it and me trying to get it down, okay? You know, I, 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 um, I remember eating stuff that... Um, that Nozuko made, and this was the best stuff for her. And I was like, cool, I'll try anything once, you know. In, in, in Rec Road Church, when you get together, you get to share diverse experiences. You get to ask questions. Why do you do it like that? I'll never forget going to a meal in my squash club. There was a guy who was an Indian guy in our squash club, and we arrived at his house. His name was Ian. And at the table, I noticed quite quickly there were no knives and forks. Like, not one. And there was an Afrikaans lady, and she was a bit awkward. I could see her. She was checking this out, and she was kind of asking Ian, sorry, do you want me to go and get knives and forks? There's none on the table. And Ian was classic, because he said, no, 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 we, we don't need knives and forks. She said, no, 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 I eat with a knife and fork. He's like, not at my house. <laughs> and then he just up the sloppy curry and watched this auntie trying to, <laughs> trying to eat like Ian was eating. But it was a total blast. Meals in a multicultural society and church like ours are a wonderful opportunity to learn from each other, aren't they? Hallelujah. Second from last, meals are an opportunity for diverse gifts to get put on display and to be really showcased. You know, around a meal, whether you can preach or not isn't really relevant. Whether you're great at prophetic words, irrelevant. Whether you're great with kids' ministry, it's irrelevant. There's some other gifts, like do you love helping people? Do you love serving? Can you cook? Are you hospitable? And they're gifts that shine in a meal setting that don't shine in a setting like this. They're a wonderful opportunity for people who've got gifts and abilities that you don't know about to suddenly come to the fore. And lastly, this is maybe my favorite one. Shared meals have an amazing way of declaring to the person who's been invited you are valued. We see you and we value you. Everyone knows that feeling of being invited to something and think, oh, they thought of me. Oh, that's what Sitabile would do around the office table. They thought of me. Yes, meals have an incredible way of communicating value. So I hope you can agree with me that shared meals communicate so many amazing things. So we'll do well to remember that when we have someone in our home, when we choose to pay the cost, when we choose to serve them selflessly in time, in effort, and in money, remember that you're being like God because that's what Jesus has done for us. You see, God who welcomed you into His home paid the great price to have you in his home. God invited you not just into his house, but he gave you a place at his family table. You've become the family of God. And the cost was what we are going to celebrate at communion, was his own son. He didn't open his wallet. His son's life was ended so that you could be welcomed in to his family. Many people love the idea of community. We, we, we love that idea. Rob preached earlier in the series how many people want to find community in the church. We long for community. But brothers and sisters, when we decide not to eat alone, but when we decide to eat together in one another's homes, when we invite one another to our homes, we choose not to find community. We, we don't just hope to find it. We choose to build community and we experience community because of that. And I so want that for you and I. So let's just, before we bring to a close, let's look at some of our excuses. Should we look at the excuses we've got? Because you've already been thinking of excuses. So I'm going to see if I can think of the excuses you've got. What are our excuses why we don't or why we can't share meals in our homes? 
Are you ready? Have you got a little list? Think of your list. Let's see if I can get your list. Firstly, my house isn't good enough, big enough, smart enough, nice enough. You get the picture? Okay, so let's just think about that one for a moment. In Rec Road Church, there's a word that really matters to us, and it's this word, authenticity. Being authentic, not putting on a show, but being authentic is incredibly valuable. Would you agree with me? It's so important to be able to say to people, okay, this is me. This is where I live. This is my room. This is my family, or this is my lack of a family. This is my dining room, or no, I don't have a dining room. This is my kitchen with some buckets that we sit on, or this is my room where I sleep and I eat. But this is me. Would you like to know that this is your member in Rec Road Church, or would you rather not be invited because they don't yet have a mansion? I would rather know this is you and this is your reality. And I want to say, I want to come to your house because that matters. Because when we get invited and when we invite and when we share a moment, wherever that is, where you call home, it communicates value and authenticity. Amen? Second excuse, I can't cook well enough. Any of you thought that? Well, firstly, this isn't come dine with me. This isn't Master Chef. And so although it is great to enjoy a good meal, it, who, who wouldn't agree, huh? It's great to go to a place, I see that hand, Cindy. It's great to go to a place where someone really knows what they're doing and they've been generous and you get to enjoy a feast. Great, no problem with that. But... What I'm talking about today isn't about anyone's need for affirmation. They think I can really cook, or they think I'm really wealthy and can provide a big meal. It's not about you trying to win your approval through cooking. It's just about us sharing time together, doing life on life in proximity to one another. Amen? And so a typical meal of what you would normally cook, even if that is baked beans on toast, or pap. With, uh, with some gravy over it, or Marmite, or eggs in the pan, your normal meal, it's okay to, to serve to someone else in the church. Would you agree with me? Just tell your neighbor, it's okay. It's okay. What, just tell them what you've liked cooking. It's okay. Whatever that is, it's okay. It's not about a competition. In fact, that's a wonderful opportunity to learn and to be authentic again. Would you agree? Just don't burn that toast. How about this one? I don't have time. I, I don't have enough time. I want to take a little bit more on this one because I think this is a major problem in our society. Brothers and sisters, we were made for deep community. Amen? We all need it. We want to belong, we want to have a place where we can love people and where we can be loved, where we can be seen and we can be valued. And I'm not just talking about your immediate family, I'm talking about beyond, I'm talking about the family of God. But we live in a society, now listen to my words carefully, where we have constructed our own lives in such a way that we leave no time for the very community we need. If you feel you're too busy, it's probably worth doing some reflection. Because the life you've created is actually telling you something about some deeper things that are actually existent probably in your life. I want you to reflect on this question. Why are you so busy? And what is at the root of that busyness? You might be surprised to find that there are some idols that you're living for that are actually at the root of your busyness. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. The trio that I'm part of regularly has conversations around busyness and what do we do. There are at least four idols I could think of just straight away that sometimes are at the bottom of busyness. One of them 
is the idol of approval. Striving for achievements, working so hard at work because you want someone to affirm you or you want to climb the ladder. And so the sacrifice is your busyness. I want to say rather peg your career at a certain level and actually live life. You know, I said goodbye. We said goodbye to Keith last Monday. Jesus took Keith home to be with him. I think if you had a chat with Keith, he would tell you, hey, rather peg life and then just be busy the whole time and actually spend time with people. In the last days of life, no one asks for their to-do list to be brought to them. They want people to be around them. I want to ask you if there isn't an idol there where you're seeking the approval of someone or something through your busyness, striving for an achievement, or always saying yes to people. You don't know how to say no to things because you're actually longing to gain approval. There's another idol that could be at the bottom of busyness, and it's the idol of children and family. You might say, that can't be an idol. Absolutely, yes, it can. And that is just a cousin of the idol of self. So you think that you're being selfless, but you're actually being selfish. Because you're just living out your, your desires through these. And you said no to all sorts of things, but it's because of your family. And I want to say, you just being a nuclear family, that's not in the Bible. It's actually the idol of self and self-gratification. How about the idol of comfort? Oh, I'm just tired. I really need some time. So I, I get that. I understand that. And obviously, we need to live a balanced life. But I want to urge you to not just give in to the idol of comfort. It's, you know, today when I got uh, an, an invitation to, to go to someone's house, I thought, yeah, I could rather just rest on the bed. You know, I've worked hard today. I got up. I was up at three this morning preparing for you guys, and, and maybe I'll just be, it'll be good just to lie on the couch for a while. Do you know that feeling? And sometimes that feeling, yes, that's what you need to do. But if you're not careful, you use it as a joker card. And I want to ask you, how many times are you playing the joker? And do you have really good community? Or do you just show up at church and disappear? Lastly, the idol of control and the sin of unbelief. Sometimes we're working so hard because we're looking for significance or for security in the things that we're doing rather than believing God and trusting God. Brothers and sisters, I'm not after you. I'm not out to get you. But I want to say sometimes when we say we don't have time, we need to ask another question. And we need to say why. Because God designed the world for us to take rest God set up a rhythm of rest, and it's partly so that we would devote ourselves to Him, but also that we will devote ourselves to one another, and I want to encourage you to live a healthy, balanced life. Brothers and sisters, there are no shortcuts to community. You can't buy it, so I would suggest that we all reprioritize our lives, and we make the time for one another. You will not regret it at all. And the last excuse, which is a very valid one, is we're in a worldwide pandemic. And you're telling us to meet in homes and to have people around. I'd be surprised if you're not doing that anyway. I just want to encourage you to be intentional about that time. But yes, it is true. Good one. Good excuse. We are in a global pandemic. That is true. And we are definitely in a second wave at present, so I acknowledge that. But I also want to say, don't hide behind that unnecessarily. That's all I'd be appealing. I want to appeal you to you to be wise. I want to appeal to you to be safe. But I also want to appeal to you to not, to not make some mistakes that will end up leaving you isolated in the end. You should love each other by being honest about your COVID exposure. So Tom has been a really great example of that. To me, he's, he's cautious, he's clear, he communicates to us as elders. He didn't come to the elders' meeting on Thursday. Aren't you glad, Caniso? He didn't come on Thursday. There's Caniso and I, so he was on Zoom. He's been open, he's been honest. I think I've been exposed 
and turns out a day later, yes, I'm COVID positive, so he's not here. That's the type of thing we need to do. Don't show up to church without a mask. Don't come to church if you've got a temperature. If you've lost your sense of taste and touch, don't go to someone's house then. You get, you get the picture? Let's be safe. Let's love one another. Let's wear masks. Let's create safe space. But brothers and sisters, how long are we going to be isolated from one another? When is it going to be safe? In the next three years' time? They reckon that next year 3% of South Africa will get the vaccine. So that's like you, you five over there. Hold on, guys. You got the vaccine. The rest of us, we've got to work out how to do life, how to do ministry, how to do church. And so I want to encourage us to really think through these things. Brothers and sisters, we can't just stop life. We can't just stop community. We can't just stop being the church. We can't just stop kingdom advance. People need to hear about Jesus because they're going to hell without Jesus. We should open our homes to one another, to people who don't yet know Him. And so let's work out how to grow deeper as a church in the midst of a global pandemic. I'm convinced we can work it out. Amen. So brothers and sisters, this is my simple appeal. Share your homes. Share meals. Do it because that's what Jesus, our master, did. Do it because that's what the pattern of the early church was. And I want to especially encourage you at this time to invite people that you don't yet know well in church, to invite people around to your house, to have people in your house, to invite people who are different from you. I really believe this is the next frontier of, uh, for us to, uh, to us to really break through as a local church. We're totally happy to be in a room like this, but let's have one another in our homes more and more often. People going into the townships, people coming out of the townships, people going to Ilovo Beach, people going to Athlone Park, wherever you happen to live, have people in your home. Go to people's homes. I want to encourage you to do that. I really believe that's the next frontier of us really becoming closer and closer as a non-racial, multicultural, cross-crossing church. Brothers and sisters, may we put on display who we are, the family of God. Not just once a week in a corporate public Sunday meeting, but in each other's homes, inviting all sorts of people into our homes, just like Jesus did and like the early church did. May we keep building Jesus' church through our homes. Let's use those opportunities wisely But we've got opportunities now during Christmas and during the holidays for you to maybe think about Christmas like you've never thought about Christmas before or to think about the holidays like you've never thought about the holidays before. I want to encourage you to establish a safe but to establish a pattern where we engage with one another around meals. And as we do, I want to bring your attention to two meals in Scripture. The communion meal which keeps Jesus at the center of our lives and forgiveness and the gospel, the center of our lives. And one other meal that's in the Bible, the feast that is going to happen on the day that Jesus returns. Did you know you're going to a feast? It's called the the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is going to be married to His church And Isaiah writes about that day, and it is going to be an absolute feast. And you and I have believed in Jesus, have been invited. Brothers and sisters, throughout the Scriptures, into eternity, Jesus has always gathered His people around meals. And so we're going to close today as we look forward to Christmas. We're going to share this communion meal. I know it's not much to eat and it's not much to drink, but the significance is not in the size, but in who it's, who it's reminding us of. So what we're going to do is uh, there are four uh, stations around the room. What I'd love you to do is try not to touch all the crackers. Just touch your cracker, okay? Uh, but we're going to open up, uh, open up now. Can you go and get yourself uh, a little cracker and, uh, and some grape juice and go back to your seats? And I'm going to lead you in a prayer as we remember Jesus by remembering this meal that he told us to remember. Let's, let's do that now. If someone can just take the plastic off the plate. Prince, could you take the plastic off?
Let's stand to sit our chairs. If you're at home, maybe you can just pause, go and grab some elements, and then you can join us as we break bread. Great. So you're holding two elements here. The first is a little cracker that represents the bread. And Jesus said that we must remember him. And I want you to break that cracker. Jesus' body was broken for you and me. This was the price that Jesus was willing to pay for you and me to not just be strangers, to not just be followers, but to become sons and daughters at the table of the King. God has become your father if you put your faith in Jesus. And if this morning you've never put your faith in Jesus, then this meal isn't yet for you, but I would encourage you to come and speak to me today because I'll pray for you, and then this meal is for you. But this meal is for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus. And look at that cracker broken in two, and just thank him. Just close your eyes and thank him before we eat it. You're going to have to take your mask down when you eat it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Just say in your own words, Lord Jesus, thank you that you paid the price, that you so wanted me in the family, that your body was crushed for my iniquities. Your body was bruised for my sins. But Jesus, you are willing. Thank you that it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning at shame. As you eat that little biscuit now, just thank Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This cup with this little bit of red juice in it is a symbol of Jesus' blood that, showed, that flowed. I just, um, as I was thinking of the value that Jesus placed on you, I was just thinking of Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, this damaged guy whom King David raised to a place of honor at his table, and how that's actually every one of our story that we had shame, we had regret, we had things we've done wrong, but Jesus gives you honor by washing your sin away because his blood flowed for you. Why don't you thank Jesus for the gift of forgiveness? And maybe you need to even ask Jesus to forgive you for something right now. Then just do it right now. 1 John 1 9 says that if we, forgive, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us like it never happened before, all because of the blood of Jesus. So once you pray and when you're ready, drink that juice to remind you of the freedom that is yours, the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Then live in that freedom. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you haven't just invited us to believe in you or to just follow your teaching, but you've welcomed us into your household and that we are now the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. I pray, Lord, that we would represent your family well on this earth, that the largesse that was on you would be in us that the seeing of others would be in us, that our eyes would be like your eyes, and that our hands and our embrace would be like yours, and that our homes would be filled with the presence of Jesus as we have people in them and through them, and as we go to one another's homes, we ask, Jesus, would you be present there like you promised, that if we gather just two or three, you are there, amongst us. Lord, we just say thank you so much 
I pray, Lord God, Lord, for every person in our church who feels like they're on the outside or feels they've been isolated in some way. God, would you draw them close and would you use us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name.